Hey, we're live. It is uh, the top of the hour of some hour on Wednesday afternoon, and this is Two on One, uh, the Disciples of Christ leading podcast and videocast about theology and pop culture hosted by two ministers ordained in the 21st century. I am the Reverend Arthur Stewart. And I am the Reverend Stephanie Kendall. And uh, Arthur, I'm very excited for today's conversation. Um, Our guest is one of just my favorite people, and I could talk to her all day long. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, before we do, can I can I share with you some very important news? Um, I hope you share all of your important news with me. Where else to share important news than live on Facebook? Well, live on Facebook on a Wednesday in the middle of the day. Yeah. To a, to a varied audience, uh, some of whom are robots, some of whom are skeptics, but a lot of whom are pretty great people. Yes, but did you see this week, or maybe I named it last week, we are a global uh, podcast. We have people who consistently download uh, and listen to us from all around the world. So, um, that hola. is terrifying. Like, uh, honored, but that is terrifying. Um, I'm so excited that uh, people are putting the word out there that 2 on 1 is reaching uh, audiences globally. Well, and make your friends listen to it too. Like borrow their phone, download literally any any podcasting app whatsoever. Oh. Uh, or go yeah, and and subscribe them to 2 on 1 or you can go on their Facebook and instead of being like I poop my pants as a Facebook status, like 2 on 1 from their page. It'll be a much better prank because they'll get something out of it. It's a good Ooh, prank. I like it. Thank you. Um so, by the way, you do know mm. Pride is coming up, right? Ooh, my, Arthur, my love, it is March. It is barely March. Which means there's only three more full calendar months until Pride. If you're an, uh, if you're a um, insomniac, there's like four sleeps till Pride. It's great. <laughs> but also, there are zero sleeps uh, for Women's History Month. Are we just going to skip that? Well, no, we're not skipping that. We're in it. But I'm looking ahead because have you seen the rainbow stoles that Jeff One Row designs like that are up right now if you went to jeffonerow.com? J-E-F-F-W-U-N-R-O-W.com, Jeff One Row? Yes, yeah. I have seen them. And I was looking at them earlier today because I'm actually looking for uh, a couple stools for some friends that are graduating. Um, there are some beautiful rainbow ones. There's thin spectral lines on full bold colors. There's wavy prismatic lines or thick colored drapes over one shoulder. They're beautiful. Well, and there's chevrons, there's cranes, mm-hmm. there's Celtic knots, there's solidarity protest designs. It's kind of amazing. It was, uh, but do you think if I'm looking for something that's like almost what's on his website, do you think that Jeff would uh, work with me to customize an order? Well, I, I absolutely do. That's what 16 years of outstanding customer service, quality, handmade liturgical textiles, and creative, beautiful artwork will do. Mm-hmm. Jeff Wonder Designs makes ordinary time extraordinary. So if you're getting ready for this season, the next season, or another season, <laughs> check out Jeff One Row Designs at Jeff One Row. That's J- J-E-F-F-W-U-N-R-O-W. I didn't want you to have all the spelling fun. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, JeffOneRow.com. And as a special treat for those who engage with us and listen to us all around the world, uh, you can use the code 2 on one all one word, all uh, one. spell it all out too. So T W O O N O N E. I look at, I can spell two on one too. 
wow. <laughs> uh, at checkout and you will receive 15% off your entire stole order. So not just one stole. If you like multiple stoles or if you need, as we all do, multiple stoles, uh, the two-on-one code will work for 15% off your entire order. And I know for a fact from Jeff himself that uh, that is the best going deal uh, on the internet for his stoles. And I think I have the math right. Basically, it's buy seven, get one free. If you Ooh. think about it. Okay, well, we thank Jeff Wanro Designs for being our lead sponsor. These stoles still steal the show. And speaking of the show, Spiff. Yeah. Okay. Our guest today, one of my favorite human beings. Just a gem. Mm -hmm. The best. I should admit her from our green room, which looks a lot like a waiting room, shouldn't I? You should. Bring her on in. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, siblings and nibblings alike, we are uh, honored to welcome the Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Hey, Katie. Hello. Hello. It is good to see you. Thanks, y'all too. So how have you been? Do you have power? Do you have water? Do you have masks? Like you're, you're in the power. house. Okay. Yeah, no, we, you know, I, I have all the things. I'm, we are fully functional over here at the Hayes Poppy Homestead. Um, and slowly kind of one by one families in the church are kind of coming back online and, you know, in terms of electricity and um, water, safe water. But but we're still not 100% on that. We still have some people who are flooded out of their apartments or houses. And um, some people still, just a few, still under a boil water notice. So they can't drink what's coming out of the faucet. So, yeah, it's going to take a minute. It is. And, it, you know, uh, I love y'all. But you're, you got to keep wearing those masks, too. <laughs> we are totally going to keep wearing those masks. And um, I'm not a fan of leaders who push hard decisions down the ladder so that people at lower and lower levels have to make those decisions. I'm not a public health expert. It ought not be my job to try to make public health policy for my congregation, my beloveds, but that's what we're going to have to do. We're going it, to, it just comes to very hyper local leaders right now to make wise decisions for the good of the human family, not just for each person's own good, but for the good of the human family. So we'll just keep doing it. But I'm I'm not happy that we have to. Well, I mean, okay. there's there's people who campaign on government not working, and then they get elected to prove it. Like yeah, it's, it's just the worst yeah. self fulfilling prophecy one can imagine. And I yeah. I have opinions about Texas politics. I was a sure. happy I was a happy lobbyist for many years. Yeah, I'm still on yeah. a couple of weirdos Christmas card list, but. <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I think uh, was it two weeks ago? There was the, we've got the scripture that says like you're working under man's law, not God's law, and so God's law is love. And so uh, just because it is law that you don't have to uh, protect others does not mean that God does not uh, require us to do so. And so um, thinking yeah. and praying about all of you and the Thanks. tough decisions that we are all making in this time. Um, totally. Two on one hopefully brings a little uh, highlight to the different parts of our world in which we all inhabit um, yeah. and also connects us in great and wonderful ways about what are you watching and reading during <laughs> this time of social isolation? Who are your digital friends right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What are the go tos? That's a big question. Yeah. Katie, yeah. I can't help but notice that to your left, there is an enormous stack of Stephen King paperbacks. Uh, would you? I- I, I did I my homework, friends. I reread the entire Dark Tower series in preparation for our conversation. 
And it was delightful. It was absolutely delightful. I'm so glad to have an excuse to go back because, you know, they were published. This series was published over ugh, 20 years, a very long time. So the majority of my young into middle adulthood, I was reading these books. I was the, I was one of the people who was waiting, waiting, waiting for each next one to come out. Um, I lived with these characters in my head and in my heart. And when I read them through the first time, I got to the very last book. I closed it and wept like a baby. I, I mean, it's very clear to me remembering that back in 2004, probably, um, because I was losing these friends. You know, these these characters were people I cared a lot about. So this time I reread the whole thing, finished the last one last night, closed the book, wept like a baby. <laughs> I just lost them all over again. Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the test, isn't it? Of yeah. You, you, and the second time through, it's even worse because you know what's going to happen. Oh, I know. Still, yeah. yeah. I yeah. I love that you reread a series of books. In I loved it. For this. You, you loved definitely it. win most prepared guest. Yay. I yes. was so hoping there would be a prize. I love the trophy. Uh, <laughs> let's see if I got the timing right. Ding dong. Okay, no, sorry, but a, a guy named John is going to give you a trophy. He's going to pull. Oh, oh, good. Okay. <laughs> um, what is happening? So, so, so Katie, uh, can you tell us a little bit about? I mean, you did tell us a little about your your background with with Stephen King and the Dark Tower, particularly. <laughs> um, so that's a good question. Spiff, who are you? Where, 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 oh, yes, actually, Katie, who are you? Why are you here? <laughs> Why am I here? Yeah, I'm here because y'all ask me because I say yes. I say yes to lots of things. Um, life You're is better grateful for saying yes. Life is better when you say yes as much as you can. That's that's the thing I really think is true. So uh, I'm Katie. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the founder and lead evangelist of Galileo Church on the outskirts, the southeast outskirts of Fort Worth, Texas, and. <laughs> Uh, we're a church where we, we seek and shelter spiritual refugees. We've been doing that, get this, for almost eight years now. Wow. Yeah. By any chance, I know that we're uh, list, or that we're talking about um, Dark Tower, which started off as a book. Katie, do you particularly have any books out? <laughs> I do, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. L- listen, the book, I, I got two books I'm really excited about right now. One is a little book. Uh, that we self-published through Kindle Direct Publishing on Amazon. It's called For the Bible Tells Me So. And it's a tiny, it's a little distillation of a seminar that I give on the necessity of inclusion of LGBTQ people in the church. And I, it's it's good and helpful because it just takes the, um, the supposed arguments that say no <laughs> to queer people in the Bible and takes those apart. But the, but the latter half of the book is how the Bible says yes to the inclusion of those that have been so marginalized. And uh, I've been teaching that seminar for years and finally got it into a form that now can be, you know, shared and pushed out. And, and so that's helpful. And then it's, um, it's so nice to not have to do the, the, the clobber passage talk. Like I can now just yeah. hand people the book. Oh yeah. Just hand people like, the book. Let's talk about Arsenicoya and, what, yeah, exactly. and like, right. I'm done. what if we could just push that on out of the way and get to a more substantive discussion about what inclusion actually looks like and how good it is for you and your church. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a book coming out, uh, release date, April 20. I'm hoping Erdman's might push it a little early. It's called family of origin, family of choice. And I wrote it with my friend who's a social scientist. She interviewed queer people who are in Galileo Church or Galileo adjacent and some of their family members and talked about, asked them about um, after the initial 
perhaps drama of coming out, uh, when that sort of settled and your, your family of origin settled into a kind of new relationship based on this new information, um, then what happened? Like over the long haul of your family of origin relationships, then what happened? And it's it's fascinating to hear people's accounts of what that looked like over some years and in some cases, some decades and um, how things often do get better. Things kind of settle, things settle differently for different families, of course, and how in each case, what we found is that LGBTQ people are trying to preserve relationship because they love their families and they wish for that love to be reciprocated. And there's just a great deal of effort expended again and again and again on the part of people who just say, just love me. It it, is such a, in some way, such a minimal request, just love me. That's it. And so they, they get to a place where that either is or isn't happening. I mean, you sort of have to decide like, what do you, what do you, where, what is the shape of your Shalom? Like, what is, what is that piece going to look like as you find it? Okay, that's a great phrase. What is the shape of your shalom? Yeah. Taking notes in it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you might find a place of some equilibrium that does, it's not the fulsome reign of God inclusivity that we might hope for from our families of origin, but it might be something you can live with. It might be, you might get to a place, a kind of settledness, a settled peace where you don't have to renegotiate your sexual orientation or gender identity all the time. You don't have to renegotiate whether your partner can come home with you at the holidays. You're just not always doing that. And so so some people find that by pushing their family of origin out of their life to a large extent, some people find it, well, there's just all kinds of ways. So we let them tell their own stories in this book. And then the, the social scientist and I did these wraparound essays from theological and sociological points of view, sort of here, here is the witness of our friends. What do we now? What do we learn now? What do we learn from these beautiful queer people and their families who are making it work? That's marvelous. I'm very excited about that. I'm very. I'm excited. Very, and that's I've pre-ordered, so I hope you will all pre-order as well. It's at April 20th from Erdman's. You can certainly find it yeah. on Amazon, but I bet you your local booksellers would be glad to special order it for you. Indeed, indeed, or even your library. Oh, yes. I've discovered if I ask my library if they have a book and they don't have it, they will buy it. Yes, they will. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, Librarians are fabulous, fabulous people. They are the most subversive introverts. And I just, I love it. They are frontline workers for our spirits in ways that I am very grateful for. I was a librarian before I was a pastor. When I went to library school, I was like, these people are radical. It was amazing. Yeah. I... Uh, so you're, uh, you've talked a lot about your books that, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, name a lot of family um, kind of language and things like that. Um, yeah. How has your love of Dark Tower in a, a story that uh, both comes in and out of, I think, chosen family most often, um, but is also a kind of soloed, siloed journey for a lot of different ways as well. Yeah. Um, has there been influence or crossover um, in your understanding of what family is uh, in reality and what uh, we, how we talk about it? What are our needs, uh, especially in light of, you know, uh, the writings that influence us? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Can I, can I back up just for a minute though? Cause I really want to tell y'all a story that Always. I thought of as, as we, 
just thinking more generally about Stephen King and my relationship with this author who I have loved for a lot of years, even apart from this series, um, I was remembering that the summer I was, I think, 14, maybe 15, I got a job in my very rural, small hometown and out in the panhandle of Texas. And the job was at the only sort of public amenity in our town, which is a public swimming pool. And for a dollar, you could go to the, sw- the swimming pool. That was it was a dollar to be admitted and you could stay for as long as it was open, hours and hours. And so most everybody in our town could do that. It was just a big gathering place. It was a, it was a mixer for generationally, racially, ac- across class lines and everything at the public pool. I got a job in the um, snack bar where we sold like Coca-Cola out of ice chests and those big flat Laffy Taffies and big dill pickles out of a giant jar, you know, it's like that. <laughs> I worked in the snack bar. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the woman that was managing the pool Vivian McAfee. I'll never forget her. She was also the lifeguard. So she had to be on the lifeguard stand the whole time and did not have a lot of time to do the other stuff. So I'm taking cash in the snack bar for admission and also for dill pickles. And one day Vivian comes in and she's got this big box and she clunks it down on the counter. And she says, you're so bored in here. I thought you might like these. And she had cleared out a bunch of paperbacks from her own shelves and had brought them. And rather than like dump them in the garbage or put them in the Goodwill or whatever, she brought them to me. You're so bored in here. I thought you might like these. And here's what I'm telling you, friends. Those paperbacks were adult books. I don't mean like X-rated. I just mean they were for grownups. And I hadn't had access to books like that before. I just didn't, my house had Bible commentaries and Bibles and those Reader's Digest condensed books. And lots of Reader's Digest. But that's kind of what we had in my own home for reading. So anyway, when Vivian brought me these books, one of the paperbacks I pulled out of that stack of amazing books was called Firestarter. And it had a picture of a little girl on the front. um, And in her eyes, there was flame, you know, Stephen King, it said on the front. And I started reading that book. And I don't think I slept until I had finished Firestarter. And that was the beginning. And it just it just went on from there. Everything of his I could find. And of course, it's not hard because he's so prolific. He's just, you know, writing, writing, writing all the time. And so for really from the time I was an adolescent all the way through, I've been reading Stephen King forever. And here's what I think about that now. I mean, I think I gobbled up Firestarter because it's a fantastic, just raucous story. It just goes and goes so fast. But in retrospect, I look at it and I think to myself, That book is the first time anybody suggested to me that institutions, bureaucracies, even the government is not necessarily on your side. It's right. I mean, Firestarter is about the government experimenting on people, giving them LSD and not telling them what they were doing. And that's eventually how this little girl gets the power of, you know, pyrokinesis. That, which is fascinating in itself, right? But this idea that the government, that the institutions, that the men in the white coats or the men in the military uniforms or the men in the suit jackets with the ties don't always trust them because though they have a w- smooth way of talking, they don't necessarily want what's good for you. And I kind of went, oh, well, that's well, something I didn't know about. The corruption of the innocent is yeah. what happened. She- yeah, yeah. And from then on, like every book of his I've read, I've thought, oh, 
it's sort of about a rabid dog and a mom and a son trapped in a car, right? And the dog's name is Cujo. It's sort of, that's interesting. But what it's actually about is when my nephew was born with a congenital birth defect that, that was very dangerous to him. And he was in the ICU for a very, very long time and almost died many, many, many times. And the terror of a parent who cannot care for their child. That's what that book is actually about. And so what I think about Stephen King is he knows what's actually scary. And he writes about monsters and stuff, but he knows what's really scary. So there's a short story of his called Quitters Incorporated. Um, when I was in, when, when I was a freshman or sophomore <laughs> in high school, we did a reader's theater because I was a speech and debate nerd and I, oh, yeah. I owned that. Mm. And our reader's theater was Quitters Incorporated. And it's basically the story of like, this guy recommends a quitting smoking agency to his friend Spiff. Uh-huh. And so he signs up with them and literally he walks in and they're like, great, you're done smoking. Uh-huh. And they leave. Yeah. Um, oh no. And they show a, uh, they show a rabbit on a electrical pad and they're, they're like slightly electrocuting the rabbit and they're like, you're done smoking. Good luck. Like if you do this, we'll take a person who's valuable to you and, and do this to her. Right. And he makes it two months and then he sneaks a cigarette. He's in his car and somehow they find out and they call him and they're like, come get your wife. And she's like, why would you do this to me? And as he's leaving, they say, smoke again, we'll cut off her little finger. Yeah. And so as somebody who quit smoking cold turkey, um, I literally had to idealize it as they're going to harm my spouse. But really, it was a question of how how selfish are you in in this addiction and what do you have the power to control? It's the same idea. I I loved it. Exactly. That's what's really scary. That last thing you said, that's what's really scary. And he just takes it to this absurd place with these absurd plots with the monsters and the dogs and the quitters incorporated, whatever. And yeah, but by doing that and making such a good story out of it, he shows us to ourselves in ways we don't always want to see. Well, that, yeah. I mean, I was thinking as we're preparing for this, uh, my Stephen King knowledge is limited, but not none. Um, I've read, I read the first, I think two or three dark tower, um, Uh books, uh, uh, and then, uh, but Carrie was the first thing that I was like, this is it. And I saw it as like a prepubescent teenager with some girlfriends and the, like, we're going to be the naughty ones and watch this movie. And Uh everyone was like, just terrified. Oh my God. What if we got stuck in a building that caught on fire, you know, and it's that. And I was like, no, no, no. And I remember thinking, I remember siding with Carrie and I think it scared my friends because I was like, I, yes, what she's doing is bad. Like, I'm not trying to justify that, but what's wrong is the systems that led her there. It's yes. the moms. It's the, it's the, it's the not access to, you know, uh, health care for lack of a better term, um, knowledge yeah. of self, uh, all of, you know, all of that. And and the social structures that keep you bound uh, and and that what her fire actually is, is an expression of who she is in this really expansive and dangerous way. But really, it's it was female empowerment in a way that I was like, oh, I get this. And right. I think that, that I like came home and like told my parents, I was like, I kind of sided with Carrie in this, just like heads up. And <laughs> Right. Just, you know, right. and they were just like, oh, OK, like, yeah, because because that's what's really what's really scary is puberty. What's mm-hmm. really scary is women's bodies. What's mm-hmm. really scary. Right. Is women's bodies uncontrolled. 
And that's, that's what that whole thing is about. And what's really scary is mean girls. Mean girls are really scary. That's worthy of a horror novel right there. And it had a, it, you know, it, as I then took on biblical studies later on in my life, the fear around menstruation and blood and things like that very much parallel into the fear of why we fear women. And I was like, oh, like it just opened up this door. And like, I was like, first of all, is he, is he the smartest person alive? Cause like the, the nuance that of like creating these things, you know, years and years ago, outside of the like subjective context that we're like living in now of women's liberation in new ways or, you know, gender expansive liberation um, that, but he was, he's been doing this for so long and he's been really consistent yeah. in, in what it means to like name the sin um, in really nuanced ways um, yeah. that aren't always, I don't know, at the surface. And for me, I was like, oh, that's, that's biblical right there. So much of the, you know, why we think what we think of the Bible socially is because we take it at a surface level. Um, we're afraid of Carrie because she can kill you in a high school gym. We're not afraid of ourselves of what we have done to the Carries in our lives that have driven. Yeah, them. We're, we're not afraid of the buckets of pig's blood. We suspend over people all the time. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that was his first published novel. I mean, that's actually kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah, Carrie. Yeah. And and I think what's kind of amazing to me about that is how nuanced it does seem around girls and women, women's bodies and the way women can be to each other sometimes and around all that and purity culture, just all of that. There is a lot of nuance in it. And I, you know, in rereading this series and thinking about I, I gave Firestarter actually to one of my kids recently because I thought, oh, they might also like to anyway, they I don't think they finished it, but um on revisiting some of that stuff though, it's like, oh, you know, he's writing through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and sometimes he pushes a button that's really problematic. So he is brilliant, but he wasn't woke then in ways that we would expect him to be now. And so one of the questions I've had sort of, and maybe y'all address this with all of your conversations around art is what do we do with the art that is truly liberative in so many important ways that is that has problems in it like it's got problematic ways of talking about race gender how do we deal with the sandlot which is almost a perfect movie except for you throw like a girl oh uh, yeah yeah no okay yeah. let's talk about that also first time a guest has been like i have a substantive no other guests have done that but i like that okay how do we deal with how do we deal with the dark spots on the banana of art yeah yeah um, i think exactly how we did it I, I i think we say like we have to introduce the process theology uh, viewpoint into yeah. it. he has to be in process he has to evolve um yeah I think that I think that's why this series and rereading the series was so interesting because it was written over such a long span. And I actually can see him as an author getting better at it, oh, sure. getting better at it. Like some of it, like his women characters, uh, there's a black character who's one of the principals in the book and, and she gets better and more developed as it goes on. And I don't think that's only because the story is getting deeper. I think it's because the author is is understanding more than he did before. And I, is that, I think that that's the inroad, right? I think we get to say these things have meant something to us in our lives for this reason, and that's okay to name and claim for, but then to also 
desanctify some of these things that we have held in such high regard in a way that says, I love it enough to critique it and name its growing edges in the same way that I love myself enough to do that work. And and that's, I guess, the hope that we're doing that, right? I mean, like, part of that is, like, here's hoping that we're all doing some reflective things right now in which we can cast new vision together that lifts up the heritage that we have, or the things that we have inherited, um, and plants a new garden in, you know, in its stead. The annuals that will pop up will continue to pop up and bloom in beautiful spaces, but we also get to plant new things because of what we have learned, um, Well, and it's the intentionality of cultivation. It's the intentionality of relationship. It's staying in conversation with something that doesn't. I've noticed in the the progressive liberal wing of Christianity, there's a purity test that has to be met. And even asking questions for the sake of clarity can be seen as an affront and a reason for um, dismissal. Uh, It's, you know, uh, uh, the conservative, the hyper conservative wing of the church, it's we're all on the same page because damn it, that's all you hear. So obviously there's that imbalance on it. But I think so I I, I actually this leads into the question I wanted to ask you. One of the roles that you understand as lead evangelist uh, of Galileo is you're uh, uh, you're a meaning maker. You're a storyteller and a story crafter. So if I know your timeline and your backstory enough, it's okay to mention that you were once of our cousin denomination, the Church of Christ. Yeah. So did you read The Dark Tower while you were in the Church of Christ the first time and now you've reread it in preparation for this, like super steeped in the disciples? Oh, wow. What's that like? Oh, wow. Arthur, that's a great question. I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah, I was in a really different life space uh, then as opposed to now. And honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm about to be 52. So I'm reading this now in the second half of my life, you know, whereas before I read it in what I would sort of count as the first half of my life, certainly all pre Galileo and sort of following Richard Rohr and his falling upward spirituality for two halves of life thing. I mean, I have arrived at the life project and I know that everything I did up to now has been preparatory for for this thing. Galileo is the thing. Everything I did up to Galileo, I now classify as preparatory for that, which is a lovely feeling. Um, and something that Rohr says, and I believe you can't really be, you can't plan for that, but you know it when it happens. So I read Dark Tower, not only in a different denomination, but in the first half of my life before I arrived at the thing um, I know I'm supposed to do with my life. So that's interesting. I, I would say, I mean, the Dark Tower series is all about a quest. Just generally speaking, you got one gunslinger who is uh, on, uh, he is absolutely 1000% committed to this singular quest and he will do it no matter what it costs. And that is such a lovely, I I mean, I, I resonate with that so, so completely. And I think on reflection, when I read it and finished it the first time, I think that some of my tears on finishing it were for myself because I didn't think it felt pretty helpless, hopeless that I was ever going to get where I was going. Mm. I mean, that denomination was such a dead end for me and for my family, for my faith and the expression of it in my vocation. Um, I just don't think I ever thought I would arrive where I was supposed to be. And now I, I don't now this time when I read it, I identified much more as we 
do, right? With the hero of the story. I mean, I just, I feel like the quest actually does get somewhere and that the sacrifices along the way are worth it. Like it, it does mm-hmm. actually in the end pan out as it's supposed to. I like that. Yeah. Has your vision of what is the dark tower of what is what you are moving for changed in this second season, like for as the 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 thing that you are headed towards, uh, as you let's say cast vision for what Galileo could be, for what Galileo is now, and what Galileo is, what you hope Galileo to be. Hmm. Yeah, my language for a lot of that has changed. My whole language around soteriology and eschatology has changed a lot in the last several years, um, and that's. And that's the next book. That one's coming out this fall. It's called God Gets Everything God Wants. And it's the whole idea that, like, um, God, if Jesus was obsessed with the reign of God, Jesus just said, you know, despite all appearances to the contrary, God is still in charge here. And the arc of the moral universe, though it be long, bends toward justice. Thank you for including that that important part. Of though right. it be long, though it be long, it bends toward justice, and that's an article of faith for me. That is faith. Mm-hmm. It's, it's faith that this is going somewhere, that it's not meaningless. It that what the sacrifices we make and relationships we build, uh, it it all is leading somewhere. And so, if God gets everything God wants, then the human project is to want what God wants. That's it. It's that it's that simple and that hard to want what God wants. Um, such that the Christian life then is not a project of behaving rightly. It's about desiring rightly with, you know, James K.A. Smith desiring the kingdom. It is simply to aim my desire, which is a human capacity, a hunger for something more than this, right? To hunger and thirst for justice, for example. Yeah, That's a human capacity. And for me to aim all of that desire uh, at wanting what God wants so that God gets a little bit more of that all the time. And to me, the quest for the dark tower is the quest for it's well, it's the quest for the repair of the broken universe by wanting one thing, by wanting what God wants, which is the repair of the universe. The wanting of its repair is itself its repair. Ooh. I don't, yeah. think I, was, I don't think I was like spiritually ready for this conversation. Like I'm, I'm just going to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I, I feel like I needed to like sit in silence beforehand and now I have to sit in silence after because there's some, there's some really just really good stuff in this and forgive me if I'm just like, but no, I always remember your definition of the reign of God because I was, and still am friends with Nicole and, uh, yeah. My favorite answer I've ever heard in any sort of uh, interview was at one point they said, what's the reign of God? And she goes, when God gets what God wants. And yeah. she said, so so what does God want? And she's like, it's fairly obvious. And I just, I kind of love yeah. snarkiness. But. The, the, the prophets have been telling us what God wants for really a long time. Yeah. Really a long time. I, Unto today, they've been telling us what God wants. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that then that morphs then into an ecclesial project, right? If my my life project is to want what God wants, do I always know what God wants? No, I do not. And do I always want what God wants? No, I do want. I I want to want what God wants. I mean, this is my prayer, right? I want to want what you want. Mm-hmm. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to want what you want. Um, so the church then becomes a 
a band of gunslingers, if you will. That's the, the gunslinger is the character here. Are the Rollins of this of this? Yes. yes. And and you know, Roland gathers around him a little collection of gunslingers who don't know they're gunslingers, but as they travel with him, they start to want what he wants. His quest becomes their quest. And now they're questing together toward the Dark Tower. The quest itself being the 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 mm, it's the good it's the good juju it's the good stuff that's being put back into the decaying universe and the signs of its decay are all through these books i mean it's it is it's terribly dystopian in a multiverse kind of way all of the universes are in decay which is why they have to go to the dark tower and the the, the tease of the the tease of the series is that something magic will happen when they get to the dark tower that will repair the multiverse. Okay. But what we learned by the end, I mean, spoiler alert, but this book We're is a spoiler show. Time. So it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, what they learned by what Roland learns at the end is that it was never about what happens in the dark tower. It was always the quest mm-hmm. that was actually repairing the, I mean, this is getting into the weeds, but repairing the beams that hold the tower in place at the center of the, not just the universe, but the multiverse. It's, it's the reign of God type thing of like, it's, you know, it, at one point, I, I guess I'm post-millennial. I'm not any millennial. Uh, I'm over being <laughs> in the millennial generation. But like, yeah, if we create a world where everyone has enough and no one is hungry and we've worked to cure disease and there is a abundance of mercy, how is that not the reign of God? Right. Um, or what if I, that is the reign of God and then God gets that ultimately? Mm-hmm. But But you haven't been wanting that all along. I mean, if you have been wanting that all along, then when God gets what God wants, that's going to be like heaven for you. But if you are invested in the status quo, if if you sit wherever you sit on the tippy top of the privileged mountain and just like it there, then when God gets everything God wants and all those mountains get leveled and the valleys get exalted, that's going to hurt like hell. So I, I have a question. Um, I have a lot of questions. I'm, I'm reading Miguel de la Torre's uh, Reading the Bible from the Margins right now. Yeah. And um, I'm not very far into it, but I've, I've, I've already had to like stop. And uh, it's so he talks about and, and this is in preparation for Sunday. And forgive me. I promise there's a question. And there's a real question, viewers, not like a Bible. Not an Arthur like, question. Yeah, not an Arthur question. So. Delatory talks about the something th- commandment, third commandment. Um, I was not raised in the Church of Christ, but uh, you shall work six days, and on the seventh day you shall rest. This shall be an, it's the fourth. Thank yeah. you. It shall be ordained as a day of rest. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. And Delatory is like, so if you're white and if you're middle class, you focus on the rest aspect. Uh, yeah. you don't work. You stop. You take a break. Yeah. He's like, and in the congregation where I heard this preached, which was primarily Latino, uh, Latino, Latina, it was how many of you are able, how many of you have work six days a week? Uh-huh. And how many of you want to have work six days a week? And the hands were much more on the second question. And yeah. he's like, so what if the emphasis is on you shall work six days? Yeah. And it just it, it kind of ruined something because I love Brueggemann's book on Sabbath as resistance, but like yeah. that that broke it. Yeah. So you're meaning making. And you, so I've discovered as a white cisgender gay man, uh, I live on a mountaintop. Yeah. I get some sideways looks. I've had to put up with some institutional bullshit, but for the most part, how how does Galileo navigate like that balance? It's not even a balance, the imbalance of privilege, 
and marginalization that can, I, I guess, how do you create a holistic story for a very diverse people? See, real question. That's Shut up question. in the comments. That is a real question. I'm really proud of you. you Nobody actually that. comments on it. It's just my inner critic. I hear that. Yeah. I have that same critic. Um, a few, so a few years ago, um, 2016, Galileo Church took a took a deliberate turn to educate ourselves about intersectionality. So we have a missional priority to do justice for LGBTQ people, but 2015 and 2016, we're raising the question of race, racism, white privilege, um, institutional racism, systemic racism for us in a new way. We were hearing that with new ears and wondering what it would look like to sort of leverage um, whatever whatever capital we had built up together by making safe space for LGBTQ people or truly just not safe space, but like really just inclusive family of choice in this in in Jesus name, which is what why it's a church. Um, what would it look like to sort of leverage that? But we but we had work to do. We are a majority white, culturally white congregation. And so we understood we were a little behind in terms of our own understanding. And so we did a lot of work in 2016 around the idea of intersectionality and thinking of ourselves as, um, you know, we are we are none of us just one thing. We are all of us a bunch of things. And we have lots of privilege that accrues to us um, in ways we might not have imagined because we just hadn't had our eyes open to that. We did all that work and did all that work. We were just sort of on the cusp of some new understanding around that. And then... Um, Mr. Trump got elected mm. and the Texas legislature went batshit crazy with anti LGBTQ bills. It was that very next legislative session in January that um, uh, bathroom bills were filed in the Texas legislature, you know, transphobic stuff. And we, I just have to say, we just retrenched. We, we just retrenched around LGBTQ identity. We do justice for LGBTQ people. Like that's what we do. That's our niche. That's our work to do. So, We've made it through the Trump administration. We're sort of coming out. And this past year in 2020, during the pandemic, um, you know, all of a sudden, systemic racism, police violence, white privilege, it just, oh, that monster, which is, that's, there's something that's really scary, right? That monster reared its ugly head. And we kind of went, wait, what? Oh, right. That's that conversation we were having back in 2016. And we kind of had to, we had to, again, we had to like reevaluate. What do we do? What do we do? We spent all of June. We, we, after George Floyd's murder, we spent um, all of June, uh, which normally would have been pride month for us. And we instead with a congregational conversation decided to dedicate that. We called it pride protest and the language of lament. And we did, we just preached and worshiped our way through collective Psalms of lament, recognizing ourselves as the ones who are being lamented against, <laughs> you know, I mean, reading them not as oppressed victims, but rather as oppressors. And what does it mean to hear the songs of people who have been exiled, marginalized, enslaved, exploited mm. when they are not us? What does that What does that mean for a church? So how have we navigated it? I don't know. We're, we're like, we're just, it's like slogging through something hard to walk through. I don't know. Well, no, you're, I, I think the answer yeah. is you, you are navigating it. Um, yeah, we're talking about it. it. Uh, I also yeah. want to note in 2017, 
I successfully got someone to drop their support of a bathroom bill because we were talking and he was like, I just don't want to turn and see some lady standing next to me at the urinal. And I said, what? Why are you somebody who talks to people at a urinal? Like, don't do that. Yes. And he was like, whoa, you know, I'm like, no, like, like, don't be the guy in the bathroom who talks to people. Like you you do what you need to do. You wash your hands, you leave. Right. And I was like, that's what Jesus wants is complete avoidance of other humans while doing one's business and sure enough he dropped his support the next day and i think that was me yelling at him so nicely done sir nicely Nicely done done. and what i'm hearing katie from your your story to kind of tie back to to the dark hours for you're right yes uh is that you know kind of going back to like how is your your vision of the the journey you're on like what where the the towers you're headed towards um how they have shifted is, uh, you know, because it's not, it, yes, it is the kingdom, but our understanding of of what the kingdom is, and I'm using kingdom in this space to be, I guess, the tower that we're going towards, um, has changed and shifted. And like, and your focus around it, you know, like your a, a cast vision for inclusive spaces for uh, LGBT people uh, is one thing, but recognizing that the, the oppression of Black trans women is very different than... Sh- straight cis white or, or gay white cis men is very different. Um, yeah. It's inclusive and you need, the whole work needs to happen. Yeah. But well, like the reflective part is part of that journey. When you pick up Jake, when you pick up the people along yeah. your way and you hear the stories and you hear how, you know, uh, the sins of this world have impacted the journeys that we are all essentially on the homes in which we inhabit the spaces that we name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Cause yeah. Cause like in this series at first, all we have, all we have at first is Roland's assertion that the world has moved on. And the, he says that a lot, the world has moved on. And he's talking about this. It's a cultural apocalypse. It's, but it's also a physical degradation of the ground itself is now yielding more thorns than vegetation. And there's, there's a degradation of relationship. It, he's, he doesn't quite, Stephen King says over and over again, he's he's not a very articulate or even intelligent hero, Roland. He doesn't have a lot of imagination also. Yeah. He has one thing, which we can talk about in a minute, but um, all we have is his word for it, that the world has moved on in this way. But as the quest goes on over not just tens of years, but even maybe hundreds of years, because time has gone wonky as the tower, as the beams degrade and the tower is in danger, um, the stops along the way of the quest add to our knowledge of the different ways it can get broken as it degrades, as it comes apart, as the world moves on, it's broken in more ways than they understood at first. And I think that is to this point about intersectionality. When we get out of our own silos and look around and go, Oh, it's broken for you too. And I mean, this is in my own personal biography, you know, I grew up in a denomination that didn't ordain women. And I thought once I had solved that problem for myself with the, you know, because an institution, the disciples of Christ had already solved it. So all I had to do was make a kind of lateral move over to this gracious, broad place. that was amazing. And I thought, Oh, look, Look at us. We're done. All done until um, about six or eight months into my tenure at my first disciples church, two women who were married to each other came into my church and said, are we welcome here? And long story short, I said, I don't know, Mm -hmm. because I hadn't that part of the degradation of our 
human family of culture, et cetera. I had, I hadn't seen that yet. And then I did. And then, and then I knew, oh, that's part of the repair that has to be done here. That's part of what God wants. Well, and I think about what Galileo does with neurodivergence um, yeah. and, a, and a very intentional um, embracing and, and naming of it Yeah, and how churches congregationally were, were allowed to opt out of the ADA and 95% of them did, but in part because they couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, because it would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars with small congregations, but also it's, it, it's a very clear thing of, I, I mean, we just got a door installed that opens mm-hmm. wide enough for a wheelchair to be able to wield through without incident. Yeah. This congregation is celebrating its centennial mm-hmm. and I, I can't help but think that it, it's with all of those beams. Yeah. The, the trick is as they're more and more exposed, there's there's no way for one group or one movement to address them all. So then it, I'm sorry, Spiff, I think you have a question. You're staring at me and I'm so sorry. Because no, I'm I, just listening. How? I, I, yeah. So how do we how do we partner together? Like Galileo is, um, I, I've served a, oh, that church. Galileo is very much an, oh, that church. Um, how do we, how do we as disciples name and address more beams like how do we how do we bring along people who would rather see y'all shove off into uncharted waters than but they're still ours yeah that i don't i don't have an answer for that i gotta say that's a real that's a hard one for me but where i thought you were going with that was um how how does Galileo find some peace with its little niche? Like we've got a beam to tend, That's it, the right? That's yeah, the and and maybe and so other churches are tending other of those beams that are all all of us together supporting this tower, which is the reign of God, right? So, um, and I and I think that the you know the apostles' metaphor for the church being made up of you know many members, one body kind of thing. I've always, I used to always think that was congregational, like in the congregation, some of you can cook and some of you can lead the music and some of you can shovel the sidewalks or whatever. But I think of that more now on a, on a higher level, like denominationally, and then even like ecclesially, and then even like globally interfaith speaking, we are each members of a body and we each have a thing we do. And I'm not, you know, if Galileo was an elbow, we're not supposed to do what the cheekbone is doing. We just, we, we're going to hang out and wait till we make some friends with, with some cheekbones. And, and so we're not all working on the scene. We're not all working on all the parts. It's exhausting. You're supposed to do like eyes and feet when you do the the cheekbones. Well, what the, what the I love it. Hell, I think elbow. I, I want a congregation of elbows and cheekbones. Um, they're important. I don't know. They are. No, I, I, I just, that's not criticism. That's just frustration at, I'm really enjoying this far, far too much. So I want to, uh, before we head into our last question, because I realize that we are moving, these conversations always go quicker than expected. Um, but we haven't touched on a character that I, I've always felt really drawn to, which is the man in black. Uh, the, yeah. uh, well, I don't know if they feel drawn to, but I feel compelled to engage, um, because very intentionally is named man right there. Like the man, like there is a, an embodiment to it. And yet for me, the way in which I kind of socially in my life and in my world and in my work, see it more as like systemic sin rather than the one person, rather than like the, the Satan who is, has the hand in all of it. It's more like Sometimes you can see the sin right there in front of you, 
acting overtly in oppressive ways. And sometimes it's that sin's action that lingers for decades and generations. And I, for me, that was kind of the way in which the man in black had always kind of functioned. They were, they were, they were following it because you have to follow it because it, the darkness also highlights the light, right. And like shows you the way and the path and the sins and all of that. And then it's, it's a, a structural sense, but also you kind of just know when it's been around. Yeah. Um, sometimes you see it, sometimes you feel it sort yeah. of a thing. Um, and so what, I guess uh, for the, mm, one of our questions that we can all kind of engage, I suppose, but is, you know, uh, is the man in black something that's more internal? Is it something mm-hmm. that is more external functioning in society, uh, particularly around church? Mm. Um, where, where and who and why should we name uh, the men in black, the man in black uh, that is functioning? Yeah. We'll leave Will Smith out of this, um, but the man yeah. in black that, uh, 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 uh. Uh, that, is, that is functioning. And is there, do we need the man in black to show the actual way of where we're supposed to, where we're supposed to go to show not to go that way. Does that make sense at all? Do yeah. I, am I, am I authoring a question in this? Hey, whoa. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about the code of the Woosters when we're done being. Uh, okay. Sorry. Right. You're the one that named that you rarely, that you talk. And then it's okay. It's okay for me to make fun of myself. Yeah. Oh, I apologize. I was not making no, it's okay. It's okay for you too. As well. I'm just pretending to be ended. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Anyway. So if you read enough Stephen King, you will either come to love or hate that he reuses characters a lot. So there's there there's cross-threading. He's so written so many books. He's only got so many characters. It is and the man they, in black from the stand, right? Same guy? Yes. Okay. So that yep. So the man in black shows up, yes, in the stand. He's very important. He shows up in lots of places, but even within the Dark Tower series, the man in black takes several forms. His name is Walter at yeah. first, but he's also uh Martin but Martin might also be Merlin um that's never quite resolved but also yes Randall Flag uh mm-hmm. from the stand the man in black the walking dude the TikTok man I mean they, they he goes under many many names and shows up in many many places and I think that what Steph said is exactly right like it is uh I think it's Stephen King's idea that there is a kind of free floating nefarious maliciousness um that is the and it might just be um, just the just the it's just the inevitable degradation. It's just the inevitable degrading of all that is. But it gets personified in these people, um, and it and it moves from person to person as necessary uh, in the multiverse, so that it can it it he he can appear in in many places, in many guises, in many forms. And that to me that that is a kind of I can work with that as a definition of Satan, the Satan, the accuser, the enemy, the, you know, the prosecutor as the one who's always trying to tear down as opposed to God's own good creation, which, you know, continues to proliferate and make more of itself in a beautiful, abundant way. There is, there is something built into it. That's also at the edges of it, kind of taking bites out of it all the time. And I think that is the man in black, um, and all these other names that he goes by. It doesn't have to be well-defined to be what it is. I think so. So that, so that a system itself can take on that project. I, I'm not going to, we don't have time for this today, but sometime I'll tell you, there is an institution in my life that I've been fighting with for 30 years. 
And it, and it's come up, it came up say year one, and then again in year 15, and then again in year 30. And here's the weird part. It's the same institution, the same fight, and none of the people were the same between any of those three iterations of the fight. So I'm a believer in the powers and principalities of Ephesians 6, or call it, yeah, or call it, um, you know, yeah, systemic ick. Systemic. I like that. Systemic breakdown. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I like systemic. Like that's, ah, the, that's, oh, that's the, it. Yeah. Oh, that's um, it. Yeah. You, you win. That's it. No, I think you said it. Arthur picked up on it and I was affirming it. So we did it together, y'all. Uh, so it, it is time for the final question. Would you? We are, we are a quartet then if we did it together. Ooh, that's our, in the, yeah. Well, Katie, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, you know how much I love you and how uh, grateful I am for you to come on the show. Um, and ha- please uh, come back anytime you'd like. Uh, anytime you're like, I got a Wednesday for you. You guys want to chat? Yeah, well, and, uh, and thank you for your flexibility with like the ice apocalypse. Oh, no, thank you. No, I was very appreciative of the, the grace to wait a bit. Yeah, thanks. So uh, as our tradition, our final question is what biblical uh, theme, book, narrative <coughs> are you most reminded of in uh, Stephen King and or The Dark Towers? Um, and uh, as our guest, we uh, invite you to answer first. Awesome. Um, I would say with respect to The Dark Tower, my favorite concept in the book is the concept of Ka-Tet. It is Ka is sort of the will of the the beam, it is the draw toward the reign of God. It is the inevitability of God getting what God wants. And the tet, T-E-T, that gathers around that ka, um, is it's the group of people, in, in this case, the group of, of gunslingers led by Roland who are questing toward that tower together. And they complement each other with various gifts that are discovered, revealed, and, and practiced uh, mm-hmm. along the way. And to me, this reminds me very much of Jesus's own idea of, of what church could be, which is to say a family of choice that can indeed uh, supplant or even replace the family of origin that cannot just cannot get with Ka. <laughs> you, you know, maybe they just they just can't get with it. They're just not ready to quest with you. Um, and so in Mark 10, you know, it's OK. I know you lost people. I know you lost parents, siblings, kids and livelihood. Don't worry, you get all that back with me. You get parents, kids, siblings, fields with persecution. It's not easy, but we do it together. And that's what church can be. So, um, yeah, that's what it reminds me of. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go only because Katie named my final answer about two minutes ago. And I was like, oh, gosh. Um, for me, and uh, as I did some kind of extra reading on Stephen King, knowing that I don't know as much, just uh, what I do know, what I have read, what I have seen, uh, very much the overarch of I feel like what he is doing at the impetus of who and what he is is very much the Ephesians six twelve for our struggles not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in this heavenly place. Yes, and and and, and stand therefore st- the the verb stand the imperative to stand is in Ephesians six in that paragraph like eight times or something. Yeah. In the novel, the stand I would contend to the death that it was named after that passage in Ephesians. I'm sure of it. I think I read that somewhere. I don't know, but I'm sure it's true. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out just a general thing on King of uh, Ecclesiastes. Like you you don't read Ecclesiastes to feel good. You don't read Stephen King and think, well, everything's gonna be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like there's there's a specific reason, and it's um, 
there's something to be said about being able to hit a stride with your first novel and never lose it for 40 years. Nice. Um, like I, I can't think of like the second book in the Harry Potter series sucks. Like, uh, no, nobody likes Chamber of Secrets, and yeah. yet there's not like a universally panned Stephen King book, to my knowledge. Well, um, there's some clinkers in there. There is some clinkers. No, nobody there. bats a thousand, but nobody's like, oh yeah. my God, have you read blah, blah, blah? It's yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Katie Hayes, I want to say thank you very much. As I, I thank you on behalf of Spiff and myself. I have to put up this graphic, not have to, but we get to. Uh, we thank Jeff Monroe Designs for doing our thing, and I've shared the screen. Uh, Katie? If you need a stole, good news. Uh, Jeff Wunrow stole, still steal the show. 